Good morning. I want to share with you today some thoughts that have been swirling in my head. Uh, we came out of COVID into in-person services right into Pride Month. And as a part of Pride Month, we heard a few of our parishioners uh, from our LGBTQ community share their experience of finding their way into sanctuary. And it stirred some thoughts for me um, that have challenged, I feel like it's an ongoing story for me that every six months or so, my concept of what it has meant for our church to become inclusive gets challenged in a way that causes it to advance. And so I just want to share a little bit about, about that with you, some of how my thinking continues to evolve, my understanding of what's going on here in sanctuary, what it means to have become and to continue to become more inclusive, maybe even working with, a little bit with the language <laughs> and how the language itself, I think, continues to constrain what it is that God seems to be doing through this. Okay, so the first um, thought that got challenged or just nudged a little bit, it, it comes through the multiplicity of voices, but I think it really coalesced when Lonnie, one of the people who shared during Pride Month, uh, she was the third person to share when she was talking. So most of the descriptions of journeys for those who would identify as queer, who've made it into our community, are these stories like this of peril, like this long journey into and out of faith, into and out of church, that often involves uh, travail, heartache, expulsion, but through and through kind of a sense of threat. But then one day, for reasons, you know, that are quite varied, the person telling the story finds their way into sanctuary, walks through our doors, okay? And for many of them, they have almost an immediate feeling of relief because they sense that this is for them a safe place. There's safety here. They can relax. The, sense, the, the, the ethic of threat, the possibility of harm coming to them because of an aspect of identity doesn't feel like it's there anymore. And so this <clears throat> sense of safety produces relief. <gasps> oh, I'm here. I'm at a place where I can be at ease. But right along with that, at least for me, I don't know about you, but there often too is a sense of arrival accomplishment, which carries with it a little bit of a hint of we made it, right? Finality is too strong a word, but it's there in the mix. But then in my mind, I had, as I was thinking that, as I was wrestling with my thoughts and feeling like, I think I'm missing something, into my mind came this pyramid. You can show the first slide. So this is something in other conversations my wife had brought up recently from her training as a counselor therapist. Uh, a guy, Maslow, who was a psychologist, uh, put out his thesis in the 1940s of a hierarchy of needs. And his basic idea was that there are certain elemental needs that you have to meet, that you have to have met, before you can move on to attaining the next type of need. So at the bottom is physiological needs. You need to have food, water, shelter, before you can move on to trying to you know, take to yourself the next type of need, a safety need for security, safety. 
And once you have safety needs met, you can move up from there to relational needs or esteem needs. And at the very top, self-actualization, which is essentially expressing yourself fully. So this is framed in terms of the personal experience, but it's also a communal experience. The self-actualization is when you can contribute meaningfully from who you are, from what's in you, into the community. And so this came into my mind when I was thinking, oh, safety, isn't that awesome? We've accomplished safety. But I'm thinking, no, safety is not an end point. <laughs> safety is the beginning. It's from the stance or the attainment of safety that a person can begin to move on to meaningful relationships, to a sense of belonging, a sense of esteem, and ultimately a sense of contribution. So it's once safety has been produced for each and every one of us here that you can then, in this community, give from within you to us to make this a place that reflects you, that is blessed by you, okay? <clears throat> so I had that in mind, and it, it also affected you know, my sense of my own personal journey here, right? And this interacted with the terms that we've used to describe what's happened. We have gone from being, over the past 10 to 15 years, a church that practiced, as a part of how we interacted with people, exclusion. Or at least control, containment. That was a thing we felt we could do as a church to people who came in here. And at some point, we flipped to what we would call inclusion. So welcoming and inclusion. And those are good terms, they're happy terms, delightful. Uh, again, nothing but good to go from being... <laughs> There's a baby in the room. <laughs> Do your best. Um, so going from being a church that practices exclusion as a thing that we can do to one that practices inclusion, right? All good, thumbs up. It's nonetheless the case that I still again found myself with more dissatisfaction about that than I had once upon a time because just the language of inclusion implies that there is a group that has existed that has values, beliefs, ethics, practices, that has a culture, a part of which used to keep certain people out but now welcomes them in. The implication is still that once people come in who are formerly excluded, a part of what has to happen is they have to learn the culture. Right? The challenge is for those who are on the outside who can now come in to belong. And that that's typically a learning process. You know, you learn the culture, the ethic, the rules, the values. And I felt in my own experience, <laughs> like, I'm wrestling because on the one hand, I can tell that story in a way that makes me feel good about myself. I was on the inside, I used to exclude, now, I'm in, now I include, I'm sure Jesus likes me better today than he did yesterday. But my real experience of having come into what we're calling welcoming, but truthfully maybe we'd better call it centering or invoicing or privileging, is I have been transformed in a way that would not have happened otherwise. Where I feel like I know God differently. And so the benefit to me is not that I'm a better person in some you know, because I'm nicer to others. 
but my understanding of who God is and what God is like is different in a way that could not have happened but for the voices that I'm hearing. So I want to tell a couple of Bible stories, a couple of Jesus stories that map onto this. I always turn to Jesus. And what I, when, I, when I'm like, you know, a little bit destabilized or wrestling with something or thinking, could this be the case? Because what happens when I get a little destabilized or when I get stretched, I think it opens me up to seeing what Jesus was already doing. So I go back to stories that to me are quite familiar. And what I find when I've been stretched is, oh, Jesus, you are so far ahead of me. And now I can just see it a little bit better. So that's what I want to share with you this morning through these stories. There are two stories. They're almost exactly the same. Um, so much so. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. So two stories that are so similar that some people have thought they're just the same stories that got told in different settings and slightly morphed, you know, the way they might. I don't know. I kind of think they're different stories, and you'll see why. The, the central characters are different. I think that, you know, pretty much the same thing just happens in both of them. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because <clears throat> the similarities will help us stay on track. They will help us detect what's important in the story I think what Jesus wants us to take away from these stories and what ends up being a detractor or a deflection. So as cliff notes to help guide you as you enter into the story, you can put it on the next slide. Here's a really brief summary, like a scaffolding of these stories. In both of them, a group of men are hanging out with Jesus. We'll probe a little bit their motivations, what they would like to happen in these gatherings. But into their happy group, a woman intrudes to express love for Jesus, which causes the men to become quite upset. So they deride her squirrel, by which I mean they try to deflect attention away from what's really going on with them, from their true source of upsetness. They also become quite upset with Jesus in a pretty consequential way. Jesus responds by deflecting their derision Diminishing them and exalting her. Okay, so that's the scaffolding. It'll help us get through to what I think Jesus wants us to take from these stories. So story number one, and I'm just going to read this to you. It's, this is one that's told in the account of the life of Jesus uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. Now, a certain one of the local pastors invited Jesus to dine with him. And entering the man's house, Jesus reclined at the table. So it's a dinner, a banquet. And I'm going to go out on a limb here that I think is pretty safe and stable to say that the primary goal of this man hosting Jesus to dinner is not to help Jesus or to benefit Jesus, but is solely for his, the host's, benefit. He wants Jesus to like him. And he wants other people to see Jesus liking him. So he's invited people who are like him, probably his peers, other religious experts in the town, maybe upstanding local businessmen. And the goal of this thing is going to be a carefully orchestrated, um, nice event for Jesus, the outcome of which is Jesus will think highly of him and everybody will see that. So <laughs> we can imagine what I would think of as kind of a self-important 
egotistical, probably somewhat fragile, anxious man in a group of similar men. And so the whole thing is going to be pretty controlled. How the evening unfolds, the nature of the conversation, the acceptable topics, the role of women, mostly not in the room, but maybe serving, okay? So it's kind of a tense affair with a clear goal, which is to make the host have a higher standing by the end of the night. <laughs> but it doesn't quite go according to plan. And look, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And knowing that Jesus is reclining in the home of the pastor and bringing an alabaster file of unguent and standing behind, weeping at Jesus' feet, she began to make his feet wet with her tears and she wiped them off with the hair of her head I am sure this was not on the little brochure that described how the evening was going to flow. <clears throat> and fervently kissed his feet and anointed them with unguent. <laughs> but seeing this, the pastor who had invited Jesus muttered to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and of what sort this woman who touches him is, for she is a sinner. Right? So in one sentence... The man has cut down Jesus. Ah, oh, he's not as insightful as I thought he was, I guess. And he's besmirched the woman. Now I'm going to go out on another limb. I am like 99.9% .9 sure that the primary difficulty of this man is not with the kind of woman that he thinks she is. There is no woman in this town who would have come into this room and done what this woman did, who this host, the pastor, would have felt good about. Right? That's not what's in play here. What's going on is, first of all, this woman has disrupted the flow of the evening, this nice, happy gathering of men doing men things. But I think more deeply, right? So his goal is completely self-interested. I want Jesus to like me and to be impressed with me and everybody else to see how impressed with me he is. This woman is just straightforwardly loving Jesus, right? A Jesus-centered activity on her part. And she is doing it in a way that is nowhere in the repertoire of expressing affection of this man. <laughs> but the problem is Jesus seems to be pretty okay with it, right? So she is expressing affection emotively, extravagantly, with tears. Has this man ever cried? We don't know. My guess is that he is watching her and somewhere in a place in his brain that he won't let himself pay attention to, he is thinking, I could never, ever, ever do that. I could never express affection that way. And so given that Jesus seems to be okay with it, and this is messing with my evening, I need to find some way to undermine her, to, to diminish her credibility. It's his own sense of inadequacy that is being highlighted in this moment to which he is responding. And so, rah, she's a sinner, right? What, what do you do <laughs> when somebody identifies something in you? that you don't like, that you don't want to face, that you don't want to pay attention to, the first thing you do is you cut them down. You, just, you diminish them as a voice, as somebody with validity or standing or credibility. Okay? And in reply, Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. That's not a good opening. And, and Simon says, speak, teacher. Jesus goes on. There were two men indebted to a certain moneylender, the one owed him $500 and the other 50 As they had nothing with which to repay, 
He graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? In reply, Simon said, the one to whom he freely forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. So I just got to say, I find this response of Jesus weird. It's just a little uncentering or destabilizing. I would want Jesus just to say straightforwardly to the host, to Simon, the pastor, don't do that, right? We don't use labels. We're progressive in our thinking and understanding of systems here. We're liberal-minded. This is an inappropriate way to talk to somebody. We don't cast aspersions. We don't use labels. We don't categorize people like that anymore. Just stop that. But instead, Jesus does this kind of strange thing where he equates the degree of love with how bad you were before you were forgiven and as if that's helpful. If I were listening, I'd feel puzzled a little uncentered, destabilized by Jesus, kind of swimming, which I want you to hold on to for the next story. Jesus goes on. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? We'll find a, we'll find a similar question of portent in the second story. Do you see this woman? Well, the answer, of course, is no. He doesn't. He sees someone who's messing with his dinner, someone who's highlighting his inadequacy. He sees someone who he has labeled as a sinner. Jesus goes on, I entered your home. And here's where we leave, confusing and perplexing, and Jesus is just straightforward. I entered your home. You did not give me water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them off with her hair. You gave me no kiss of friendship, but she, from the time I entered, has not ceased fervently kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with unguent. By virtue of which I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, because she loved much. But one to whom little is forgiven loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those reclining at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So that, this is not Jesus making room for a formerly excluded person so they can sit at the margins. A little bit of safety. This is Jesus turning the whole thing upside down and giving voice and privilege and standing to someone who was formerly excluded. And Jesus makes it explicit when she comes in and behaves as she does towards him and is derided. Jesus says to the host, none of what you've done hits the mark with how you should behave towards me. This woman with her practices, she is the one I want you to model yourself on, right? how she behaves towards me, how she thinks of me, how she relates to me. She is the model. She is the one to be emulated. She is the one privileged. She is the one given standing. And she is the one who walks away with all the good stuff. She knows how to love. She has faith. She is blessed with peace as she departs. So story number two. This one happens in the week before Jesus uh, is arrested and executed. So it's near the end. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, 
a woman who had an alabaster file of precious unguent approached him and poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But seeing this, the disciples were indignant. <laughs> so here's the first little twist of difference in this story from the first one. First, it happens at a different time, a different period in the life of Jesus. In the first one, it was religious leaders, kind of from the local community, some of whom really liked Jesus, but many of whom didn't. By the end, you know, as we approach this last week in the life of Jesus, almost all of the religious leaders and authorities had turned against Jesus right? They were behind him being killed. The second story is his disciples, his close friends. But what we'll find is that they're not as different from the group of men in the first story as we would like them to be or as they would like themselves to be. Because almost exactly the same thing happens. They're having their little group hang out. And we know from the stories that that the primary motivation of the disciples in being attached to Jesus, or at least a significant one, is they want the power that will come to him, that will come, they want power that will come to him, distributed to them when Jesus wins. And life for them is just a competition of admiration by Jesus, right? They are discussing and debating who does Jesus like more? Who will he give more power to when he comes to power? I think it's going to be me. I think it's going to be me, but I'm better than you. I'm smart, you know. So life for them surrounding Jesus is the same kind of competition for his attention, for his affirmation. So into their happy little dinner, <laughs> as they're planning the takeover, a woman comes, uninvited, having to push through all the obstacles that it would take for her to get into that place, just as with the previous woman, anoints him with unguent. says, but seeing this, the disciples were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could be sold for a large amount and given to the destitute. So here again, right, I am like 150% sure that the primary source of upsetness in the disciples was not what they're describing this woman to be wasteful, that she doesn't care for the destitute, right? That is not really what they're concerned about. They are upset because this woman is disrupting their fun event where they're competing for the attention of Jesus, and they are upset just like the previous men because she is doing something that is targeted towards Jesus wholeheartedly and completely, which they could not ever imagine themselves doing. This woman, because of who she is, because of her lived life, because of her experiences, we don't actually know, but I think that would be a lot of what's going into it. She is expressing affection for Jesus in a way that just isn't in them to do. And so they have the same sense of inadequacy, and so they do exactly the same thing. Oh, how can I diminish the credibility of this woman? That was wasteful. <laughs> like, I just don't think the primary concern of the disciples in this moment is the cause of the destitute. But that's what they use, anything they can to try to diminish her, and they're mad at Jesus. <sighs> and so it says, but knowing this, Jesus said to them, why do you subject the woman to abuse? Oh. In the first story, do you see this woman? In this story, why do you subject this woman to abuse? <laughs> On the one hand, I want to say, well, Jesus, ask a hard one. You know, it's because you're messing with their party and making them feel inadequate. This woman is. 
But it's right there, Jesus highlighting it, identifying what's going on, asking them the question of moment. And he goes on, for she has done a beautiful deed for me. For you always have the destitute with you, but you do not always have me. (laughs) So again, I just want to say, Jesus, like that just sounds strange. It sounds kind of cold, right, on his part. Well, you always have the destitute with you. You know, the first one was sin and sinfulness. Well, if you sin more, you'll love more. And so here's what I think is going on. To me, again, if I'm sitting in the room and Jesus responds this way to this accusation of destitution, response to need, I think Jesus does not want to engage in that as the topic of moment. Jesus does not want to be sidetracked into a conversation about what is sin and what is sinfulness, how does it affect you. Jesus does not want in this moment for the conversation to be shifted to the presence of destitution in the world and how we ought to respond to that. Because I think he has a different agenda. So my impression of what Jesus is doing is he is responding in a way that produces confusion and perplexity and a little bit of destabilization so that he can highlight what's of moment, what's really going on, and how these men are interacting with this intruder and what Jesus wants the outcome to be. He says, when she shed this unguent upon my body, she did it so as to prepare me for burial. Amen, I tell you, wherever these good tidings are proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the 12, the one named Judas Iscariot, going to the chief priests, said, what are you willing to give me? and I shall hand him over to you. And they paid him 30 silver pieces, and from then on he sought a good opportunity so that he might hand Jesus over. (laughs) Got a little heavy there right at the end. So what Jesus does in the midst of this interaction of these men with this woman who comes in, this intruder in a sense who has been excluded before, Jesus makes it as clear as he possibly can. Who she is and what she is doing is the model, right? Jesus critiques, in a sense, their practices towards him, and he says to them, what she has done will be what is talked about forever. Anytime I am mentioned, henceforth, anytime all this stuff going on is mentioned, henceforth, what she has done will be lauded. So he is voicing her, he is centering her, he is privileging her. It is an amazing turning inside out of what has been going on, and Jesus makes that as explicit as he possibly can. And we do these strange things to our Bible, right? This last little bit where Judas scurries off to enact his plan of betrayal is always separated by a heading from what has just occurred, as if they're unrelated. But what if they're not, right? All the disciples are indignant at what they see, both at the behavior of the woman and at Jesus' response. And so what if Judas in this moment is just saying, oh, (laughs) I get it now how things work here. Yeah, he's got to die. Because I can't do that. I won't do that. I won't participate in that kind of system that Jesus is saying, 
Here's a voice, never heard before, never given room to speak, but in an instant, right? Even though she says no words, in an instant, she's the one who I would privilege, who I would center, who everybody henceforth must pay attention to if they want to understand me right, if they want to do me and my faith movement right. And so... I come back again to what I described at the beginning, my own experience. I feel like we as a faith community, we're like on this journey, this adventure. <laughs> and we have a lot of actual freedom to do things. I feel like there's this press. It's not just these stories. Once you see this, it's story after story after story after story where this formerly excluded individual is brought into the center and becomes the voice of reason and theology and practice and what the faith community is supposed to be like. I try to imagine the church of Jesus, this collection, right, of these formerly excluded ones who are centered and who in an instant turn the thing upside down and inside out and have a voice, a contribution that has not been there before. These stories overlay patriarchy, gender-based suppression, but a lot of times it's just a man who is excluded by men for some reason and all of a sudden becomes centered. It's Levi, the tax collector. It's the man who was born blind. It's the woman who's caught in sexually inappropriate behavior. And at the end of the event, <laughs> all the men are sent away and she's left standing there with Jesus. Right? Again and again and again. I feel like we have this opportunity here to lean into what this could actually be like. And my strongest resonance with this I think it's still representative, but it's a way that this has happened in our church is our turn towards centering, formerly excluded queer voices. I can't tell you, I just, I can remember every single voice that's spoken from this podium. I can remember Katie, I can remember Michelle, Chris, um, Lonnie, Dustin, Jen, I'm sure there are others. Every time they speak, I hear something about God that I could not have heard from any other person that has changed my conception of who God is and what God is like and how God relates to us and what we're going to be like as a faith community. And so it's this, it's beyond inclusion, right? And so my hope as we go forward is that we can find out more deeply what that means. So I want to take just one minute. The band can come forward as we prepare for the next part of the service to re-enter into worship again. I just want to give a minute of thinking, contemplating. Maybe for you, you know, the truth is most of us in a room would be the ones who'd be upset by whatever the new expression of love for Jesus is that comes from somebody who is not us. Most of us would be the ones who'd be unsettled by that. And that's a thing to wrestle with, right? Oh, am I unsettled by voices that I would not have seen in this role before? But maybe you're one who has found in this place safety that you haven't experienced. I would wonder what's next <laughs> for you, you know? Just what from a place of safety do you have to say? Do you have to contribute? Do you, what practices? What thoughts, what feelings, what emotions, what awarenesses? 
So let's take a moment just to lean into that. So we invite you into this place, God. We catch a glimpse of how you, Jesus, thought of church and of the faith community. Help us to find our way into that. And in this moment, we give you uh, just a brief moment of reflection. Amen. So, I will transition now to some time of worship. Uh, parents, if your kids are in the back, this will be a time to um, go find them, bring them back into worship with us, uh, and we'll continue forward in worship together.